0: This is R. J. Rush Dooney, easy chair number ninety-three, March the twentieth, nineteen eighty-five. To begin with, this afternoon I'd like to read you a letter from Doctor Victor Porlier, in which he asks a question. I quote: "One of the hottest psychological fads is mental imagery." Seminars proliferate, as do books and articles. I even read a reference to a scholarly journal of mental imagery. You probably know of the steps outlined. Find a quiet, relaxed setting, use a mental focusing device or technique, assume a passive attitude, observe the creative images, etc. Of course, everything is promised, achieving personal goals, enhanced creativity, and problem-solving, confidence-building, etc., all of which are highly desirable. Nonetheless, it has so many parallels to Eastern religions and to self-culture techniques, and what little I know of ceremonial magic uh, makes me uneasy. Still, the desire to be more creative, effective, and productive is there. So, here is my suggestion. We can't, as a body, take dominion over a culture if we can't take dominion over ourselves in Christ. Yet self-dominion leads easily to pietism and humanistic self-help techniques. End of quote. That's an excellent analysis, Victor. And, of course, you put your finger on the uh, problem. These uh, techniques used in contemporary psychology are very closely connected to Eastern religious cults. They do represent, on the whole, a passive attitude towards reality. Now, whenever you cultivate a passive attitude, you are going to stress the imagination, because the emphasis, then, is not on what you do, but what you allow the world to do to you. When we began to develop as a civilization a humanistic attitude and no longer a dominion orientation, we became as a culture progressively egocentric and passive. As a result, imagination began to loom larger and larger in the life of man, and man, approached reality through his imagination rather than through his action. And imagination became increasingly the tool, so that the key to the man was his dreams, for example, where you have the extreme of passivity. This is Freudianism, and a great deal more than Freudianism. And in every aspect of uh, this type of culture, You have this passivity. A man retreats into his imagination or into his dreams, and here is the key to his life. Well, the key to this is that the opposite is obviously something radically different, a life of dominion, a life of action. When we live such a life, we are oriented to doing things, And our uh, thinking, if you want to use the term mental imagery, is then directed to accomplishing something. How best to resolve this problem? How best to do this, that, and the other thing? The results, then, are dramatically different. I'm going to read something to you from the Life and Liberty letter put out by Kent Kelly in uh, 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 Southern Pines, North Carolina. Now, I'm not a fan of John Wesley's by any means, but this, I think, is an interesting quote from this letter. I quote, John Wesley traveled 250,000 miles on horseback, 20 miles daily for 40 years preached 40,000 sermons, produced 400 books, and knew 10 languages. At 83, he was annoyed that he could not write more than 15 hours a day without hurting his eyes, and at 86, he was ashamed that he could not preach more than twice a day. He complained in his diary that there was an increasing tendency on his part To lie in bed until five thirty in the morning. End of quote. Well, now Wesley was not unusual in his day. There were men far ahead of him, and some not up to him. It was also a time when child prodigies were not unusual. The reason for it was there was a discipline. There was an orientation to action, to dominion, to mastery of one area of life after another. When you have that orientation, then the net result is that you begin with dominion over yourself. Your thinking then is geared to problem-solving, dealing with practical problems, because you intend to move in and act on them. But too often, Christian uh, peoples are encouraged to a withdrawal, a retreat, and prayers that concentrate on the inner life rather than the dominion mandate. We're not going to return to the other uh, framework mentally overnight. We are deeply imbued with this self absorption. So, it's going to take time, but in due time, we will get there. Christian schools are a step in the right direction. Before I go on to something else, let me just uh, give you a couple of items from the same Life and Liberty letter of Kent Kelly. I quote, The typical divorce in the United States comes after seven years of marriage. Utah divorces, however, in 1981, the last year of statistics, came after only 5.1 years of marriage, according to the Idaho State Journal. Unquote. Then uh, this item uh, from uh, Patrick Buchanan, a very fine man now in the White House. Uh, working on the staff there, Uh, namely that he, in a recent column, predicted a medical holocaust, stating that before this decade ends, AIDS will have killed more Americans than died in the Vietnam War. One hundred new cases of AIDS are now being reported every week. At our staff breakfast this morning, we had a doctor with us who was giving us the latest data as released by the medical authorities, which indicates that the incubation period for AIDS is two to five years. And during that incubation period, the person does not know he has AIDS, but it is highly contagious. Now, given the fact that they now know that kissing and sneezing, coughing, can convey the uh, infection, you can realize the threat. The estimate is that perhaps as many as 15 million people may become vulnerable before the decade is over. So, it's a very serious matter. Moreover, one of the things not recognized is this. As uh, this doctor friend pointed out, that no epidemic stays in the community where it began, so that while it is currently a homosexual disease, when any uh, thing such as this which is contagious, develops. It then spreads rapidly to other groups in society, to the general population. Hence the estimates that perhaps as many as 15 million may come down with it. Thus it's a matter of no small concern, and we should be mindful of this. Then another item from the Stockton uh, record for Saturday, March 16, 1985. Jim Castelli of the Gannett News Service has an article about a federal district court judge in New York that has given the green light to a lawsuit that could have a major impact on both politics and religion in America. The suit filed by Abortion Rights Mobilization uh, charges that the Internal Revenue Service has failed to strip the Catholic Church of its tax exempt status in the face of the Church's political activity on behalf of pro life. This is a very serious matter. This is not the first such suit to be filed and more, no doubt, will be filed. The goal is that, first of all, a victory is gained simply because, as in this case, a federal district court judge has given the green light to such a lawsuit. He's ready to hear the case. The very fact that a judge is ready to hear such a case is a tremendous defeat. It means that a federal judge is viewing as questionable, or at least open to question, the right of the Church to speak on moral issues that are pertinent to the faith, in fact central to the moral standards of the Christian faith. That's in itself a tremendous evil. The state has no such right. Then second... Too often in such decisions, however favorable they may be to our side, there will be here and there the seeds of destruction, in that the court will at one point or another raise problems and questions that open the door to a a number of very, very serious and troublesome matters. So, this is a matter for concern and for prayer. Then another item, this from the Pacific Legal Foundation reporter for winter 1984-85. to I quote, The plight of America's farmers is receiving daily press coverage. The issues surrounding subsidies and foreclosures, however, have eclipsed another major problem, unnecessary government intrusion on farming practices. In two separate cases, in two distinct geographical areas, California and Georgia, Pacific Legal Foundation is spearheading efforts to keep agricultural decision-making in the hands of the individual, not the bureaucracy. In the West, PLF is representing the California Cattlemen's Association, and the Agricultural Council of California, in their support of Robert Akers, a longtime farmer. Last year, Mr. Akers purchased 10,000 acres of agricultural and grazing lands in arid Lassen and Modoc counties. Of the 10,000 acre parcel, about 3,000 acres are designate and designated wetlands, as the area periodically floods and supports wetlands, vegetation, and waterfowl. Wetlands are subject to regulation by the Army Corps of Engineers and to provisions of the Clean Water Act, although Congress specifically exempted farming and irrigation from such purview. Mr. Akers' property has been privately owned and farmed since the 1890s when it was first irrigated. Mr. Akers decided to grow grain on his newly purchased land and began to prepare the soil for seeding. Preparation included improving existing irrigation facilities to promote economical flood irrigation. However, he was subsequently ordered to cease and desist by the Corps of Engineers, even though he believed his activities were exempted from permit authority. The Corps has asserted that the wetland portions of the property is subject to the Clean Water Act, Section 404, which gives the Corps permission permitting authority over any type of alterations to the property. The permit process requires Mr. Akers to provide or formulate details well in advance of the time he can expect to know his farming practices. Well, at any rate, this matter is now going to the courts, and uh, a like case involving Dr. Joseph Iannacelli and his partner in Georgia... This kind of thing is definitely on the increase, and so it should be a matter of very, very grave concern to all of us. Now on to another but related thing. One of the books I read just this month is Donald T. Lund, L-U-N-D-E, Murder and Madness. Uh, this is a book uh, published in 1976 and now out of print. Uh, uh, Dr. Lund is a prominent criminal psychiatrist. The interesting thing to me in this book, and its routine in books of this sort, is that murder and madness are so thoroughly associated, in fact, criminality in general, so that if people like Dr. Lund prevail, there is no possible future for our current legal system, because one of the things that uh, Dr. Lund says, and I quote, at the heart of the controversy is the concept of blame lame for causing harm to other people or their property. Since ancient times, the act of killing a fellow human being has been the prototype crime, a wrongful act that cannot be excused, an act for which the perpetrator must be held accountable and one which demands punishment. The Mosaic Code and other ancient systems of law provided a penalty of death for the crime of murder in accordance with the principle of an eye for an eye. The need to blame and punish someone for an act as serious as killing is deeply rooted in the emotions. To attach blame or responsibility for an act of killing is necessary, but not sufficient for satisfying our sense of justice. For many people today, justice still requires punishment and they further believe that the punishment should fit the crime. This is the concept of retribution, and murder has long been the archetype for retributive justice, that he who kills should pay with his own life. End of quote, and so on. The gist of his perspective, of course, is that... uh, the religious perspective which assigns responsibility is wrong. But now we have to recognize that it is not responsibility, it is a mental problem, mental sickness of some sort. Hence the desire to erase the concept of responsibility from the law. This is an idea which, of course, peaked a few years back, but we must not assume that because it is disappearing among the general population who have had it with this kind of thinking, that it is now um, gone as far as the psychiatric community and the legal community to a considerable uh, degree is concerned. Now to something very different. One of the books I read recently was the Sermons by Hugh Latimer, sometime Bishop of Worcester. This is an old work, and Hugh Latimer has been called by some the most popular preacher in the history of the Church of England. He was uh, a preacher with content as well as a great deal of popularity. He is best known for his martyrdom with Ridley, I believe, under uh, Queen Mary. Now, I think the thing we often forget about some of these men is that while a great many bishops were time-serving men, ready to go one way or another, not all were that way. Some were remarkable men of courage on both sides of the fence. Bishop Gardner, who was the uh, most notable champion of the old Catholic faith, was while uh, in some respects far from... uh, the best of characters, nonetheless was a man of courage, and more than once, while we may not agree with his stands, he took a courageous stand. The same is true of Latimer, who was at the other end of the spectrum. Moreover, it is interesting to note that one of the things that... Well, two things. First, Latimer came into prominence because he did uh, back uh, Henry VIII on the matter of divorcing Queen Catherine. Most churchmen preferred to sit on the sidelines on that because if you took a stand for or against, you were liable to serious repercussions depending on how things developed. Henry was a very changeable man. The political situation could change and Henry's particular desires and goals. Or Queen Catherine could pass away and the problem would no longer be there and all would be well in terms of Henry's relations with the Vatican. So to take a stand on either side indicated a degree of courage. Latimer had very serious questions about the legitimacy of the marriage to Catherine, and so he favored the divorce. On the other hand, he took a very, very strong stand against the dissolution of the monasteries. In fact, for a time it seemed that uh, Latimer might lose his head because of Henry's wrath. For Latimer, the dissolution of the monasteries was a major disaster, because it meant the destruction of the monastic schools with their free education. It meant the end of the charitable work of the monasteries. It meant the transfer also of the properties to lay landlords who were disposed to exact the uttermost farthing of rent and were ruthless to the people. It meant also the enclosure system. It threw a large number of laborers out of employment and filled the towns with beggars. Latimer himself was the son of a Leicestershire yeoman, and he spoke from a first-hand experience. Much later, although he opposed it from the beginning, he had this to say, recalling, the contrast between the old times and the new. This was in a sermon before King Edward. I quote, My father was a yeoman and had no lands of his own. Only he had a farm of three or four pound by year at the uttermost, and hereupon he tilled so much as kept half a dozen men. He had walked for a hundred sheep, and my mother milked 30 kine, 30 cows. He was able and did find the king a harness with himself and his horse. He kept me to school, or else I had not been able to have preached before the king's majesty now. He married my sisters with five pound or twenty nobles apiece, so that he brought them up in godliness and fear of God. He kept hospitality for his poor neighbors and some alms he gave to the poor and all this he did of the said farm, where he that now hath it payeth sixteen pound by year or more, and is not able to do anything for his prince, for himself, nor for his children, or give a cup of drink to the poor." So Latimer saw the disaster that the confiscation of the monasteries and the church lands had done. One of the things that uh, we need to recognize is that some of us have seen something like that happen in our time and that statism has accomplished the same thing in our day. Here in California, I can remember when five- and ten-acre farms were family farms that could support people. A 15-acre farm was a fine piece of property, and you were quite well off. Then, because of the tax structure, and in those days there was very little tax on anything, and you might pay five and ten dollars tax on your farm. Taxes increased after World War II. Farms now To be a family farm, have to be 80 to 100 acres in the San Joaquin Valley. This is very intensive farming. It's grape and peach country especially. And even that now is insufficient because the tax burden on the property and on everything else is so great. Income tax, property tax, sales tax, one thing after another so that the family farm is being destroyed. The high cost of everything is pushing the farmer into debt if he has a bad year. There was a time when your taxes were virtually nothing when you could ride out a bad year. You could go from one year to another with virtually no income, but you can't do that now. Well, Latimer's sermons are very, very interesting. Not that I agree with everything in them, but uh, they're most revealing and indicate a man of courage and of integrity. He was, by the way, uh, in his last sermon preached before King Edward VI, Uh, very outspoken on the subject of marriage. And he said, uh, let me quote this, For the love of God, take an order for marriages here in England. For here is marriage for pleasure and voluptuousness and for goods, and so that they may join land to land and possessions to possessions. They care for no more here in England. And that is the cause of so much adultery and of so much breach of wedlock in the noblemen and gentlemen and so much divorcing. Uh, parenthetically, it was marrying to increase their estates rather than for godly reasons. And it is not now in the noblemen only, but it is come now to the inferior sort. Every man, if he have but a small cause, will cast off his old wife and take a new, and will marry again at his pleasure and there be many that have done so. I would therefore wish that there were a law provided in this behalf for adulterers, and that adultery should be punished with death, and that might be a remedy for all this matter. There would not then be so much adultery, whoredom, and lechery in England as there is. For the love of God, take heed to it, and see a remedy provided for it. I would wish that adultery should be punished with death, and that the woman being an offender, if her husband would be a suitor for her, she should be pardoned for the first time, but not for the second. And the man being an offender should be pardoned if his wife be a suitor for him the first time, but not for the second, if he offend twice. If this law were made, there would not be so much adultery nor lechery used in the realm as there is. Well, I trust once yet as old as I am to see the day that lechery shall be punished. It was never more needed, for there never was more lechery used in England than at at this day and maintained. It is made but a laughing matter and a trifle, but it is a sad matter and an earnest matter, for lechery is a great sin." Now on to another subject an interesting book in print in fact out in a revised printing is plant closings public or private choices question mark the author is richard b mckenzie it is in paperback at nine dollars and fifty cents from Cato Institute, C A T O, at two two four Second Street Southeast, Washington D.C., two zero 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 three. This is a book about the demand all over the country and state after state that there be legislation to prevent plants from closing, from moving elsewhere or going bankrupt. Now, if this seems like insanity, it is all the same a dangerous form of insanity. In the process, however, one of the things that McKenzie does is to debunk the myth that we are far behind the world now, industrially. I quote, America has not been deindustrializing." Throughout the industrial world, economic performance in the 1970s did fall behind the record of the 1960s, but relative to the industries of other countries, American industry performed quite well by almost all standards. During the decade of the 1970s before the current recession began, the United States was vastly superior to the major European countries and to Japan in the generation of new jobs. Total employment grew by 24% in the United States during that decade. The next best performer was Japan, with a 9% increase. Other countries were far behind. In Germany, for example, employment actually fell. Moreover, the United States was one of only three major industrial countries, Italy and Canada having been the others, with any increase in manufacturing employment, and so on. There is a great deal of data like this in the book it tells you that the kind of impression that we have gained from a good many people and from the press is that and unions is that we are deindustrializing that we are falling behind that we are inferior to this and that country abroad and so on and so forth none of this says mckenzie is true the book is a gold mine of perspectives on the contemporary scene. Very important reading, not only for what it has to say about the attempts legally to prevent plant closures, but also to deal with the realities of our contemporary economic scene. Now, very briefly, on to another book. This is an older one. John Higgum, H-I-G-H-A-M, Strangers in the Land, Patterns of American Nativism, 1860-1925. I have dealt with immigrants and what they've experienced in this country, and this book has more on the subject. And, uh, It deals with the fact, yes, immigrants, when they came over, were very often discriminated against. But after a few years, as their numbers increased and they became uh, naturalized, politicians began courting their vote so that their uh, power greatly increased and one group after another came over and was just as ready to exclude others, including some of their own kind. So that, uh, for example, some of the Jewish immigrants later became hostile to the immigration of more Jews because they were in direct competition with themselves. So no group was uh, immune from the frailties of human flesh. It's an interesting book. It deals with the nativist uh, errors, the illusions, and uh, the vitality, basically, that all these immigrants communicated to this country. Then another interesting book, George Dangerfield. Uh, This book is also out of print is the author of The Strange Death of Liberal England, 1910-1914. to 1914. It's an excellent analysis of a period of which we generally hear little, because we tend to leap over those years into World War I. In fact, uh, from the death of Victoria until World War I, we tend to be ignorant of English history. However, uh, Dangerfield remedies this uh, very effectively. He gives us an account of the turbulence of those years, the syndicalism, uh, the labor movement and its uh, violence, its demand for a, a minimum wage, the sex war created by the feminists, who insisted, by the way, on the superiority of women. Moreover, we see on a popular level the extent to which the uh, Hegelian philosophy of the day had taken hold, and he calls attention to the fact that there was, and I quote, a semi-mystical enthusiasm for riot, unquote a semi-mystical enthusiasm for riot. We are very much accustomed to thinking of England as peaceable and staid and settled. This book gives you a dramatically different picture of a country of seething violence, uh, class conflict, hatred, and so on. A good and readable book. Well, now... Um onto something else in a different vein, this is from the farm journal for March nineteen eighty five I read an earlier piece along these lines about the uh, problem farm wives have been having when their husbands send them to. T- Uh, town for tractor and other parts. This is written by a Kansas farm youth, Kenton Kirsting, about the problems men have when their farm wives send them to town for parts for uh, uh, the oven and for uh, the washing machine. The title is, Now Mom Sends Dad to Town for Spare Parts. I'll read this. It's a delightful thing. Since the day when farm machinery evolved past the rock tied to a stick stage, farmers have sent their wives to town for spare parts. Most farm wives have ignored the potential for revenge, forced their husbands to go to town for spare parts for a blender, can opener, coffee maker, garbage disposal, mixer, wash machine, and waffle iron. It's an idea whose time has come. Some time ago, Mom, Dad, and I were eating at the local cafe when we heard the following conversation. Lloyd, where's the missus? Howdy, Ed. Bernice is on the warpath. She's not cooking for me. Oh, what's wrong? Yesterday she sent me into town for the rear crank assembly connector cartridge for the Maytag. I drove 20 miles, got the part, and drove back. Bernice picked it up and started cussing. She said it wasn't the rear crank assembly connector cartridge. It was the front crank assembly connector cartridge. Any moron should be able to tell the difference, she said. Then she stormed out to the car, grumbling that the only way to get something done right is to do it yourself, and she took off for town. Well, it was then and there that I swore up and down I would never go to town for a spare part for her again. Haven't spoken to her since, and she hasn't cooked for me since. That's the trouble with wives these days, Lloyd. They think we run the sunbeam every day and should know all there is to know about it. We returned to our meals. How about that, Dad said. I always knew Bernice wore the pants in that family. Mom rested her chin on her hands. Hmm, the rear crank assembly connector cartridge. She started to list. On rainy days when Dad couldn't do farm work, something around the house would happen to break down. One rainy afternoon, she went to Dad and said, Jack, the oven quit working. I need you to run into town and get a new interval timing copulator. Dad groaned, can't you get it yourself? Are you kidding with all that I have to do around here, six loads of laundry, dishes to wash, rooms to clean, plants to water? Can't you send one of the kids and have them saying words like interval timing copulator? What kind of a mother do you think I am? Dad found the dealer, went to the counter, and said, I need an interval timing copulator. The clerk winced. Please, sir, this store is open to the public. There may be children around. Sorry, I need an interval timing copulater, Dad muttered. It's O-R, sir. Copulator is spelled C-O-P-U-L-A-T-O-R, the clerk prompted. I don't care how it's spelled. Dad fumed. I want an interval timing copulator, and I want it now. A lady with a small girl standing nearby gasped. You degenerate, she hissed. The clerk paged through a book. Interval timing copulator. Interval timing copulator. Ah, here we are. What model, sir? Huh? What model? The 2300, 2400, 4800, or 6200 series. How should I know, Dad replied with hackles rising. It's my wife's oven, not mine. The clerk threw out one more question, Uh, one after another. Conventional or convected air? Electric or gas? Oven range combination or a single oven unit? 40 inch by 30 inch by 24 or 36 by 24 by 24 inches? white, harvest, gold, coffee, brown, or avocado green. Three hours later, Dad returned home. Before you say anything, Marilyn, he said, I want you to remember the time you brought home a $154 chain when all I needed was $1.17 replacement link. With that, he placed 14 interval timing copulators on the table. It's all right, he added. I asked before I left, and we can take back the ones that don't work. On another rainy day, Dad ran into Lloyd at the Singer sewing shop. Hello, Jack. Hello, Lloyd. What brings you here on a day like this? Bernice needs a new stitch-regulating thumbscrew controller for the machine. What about you? Marilyn needs this, Dad said, holding up a part. Wow, Lloyd exclaimed, the last... Ruffling separator guide I saw in such sad state was when Patrick was here getting a new one for the missus. You mean Dorothea has Patrick out getting parts for, oh yeah, for a couple of months now. What is this world coming to? Next, the clerk said. I need this for my wife's sewing machine, Dad said. The clerk looked at the part, then looked at Dad. You're new at this, aren't you? Does it show? Well, this is the Singer store. That part is for a Bernina. It got to where Dad would plan activities out of town whenever the weatherman predicted rain. He tried to sneak out of the house at six o'clock one wet morning. Jack Baum called. Where do you think you're going? Why, uh, I thought I'd go and look at a new tractor. He said. Where? Des Moines, Iowa. Good. While you're there, pick up a fiber sleeve gasket. For the garbage disposal, the old ones worn out. Yes, dear. Gradually, Dad is learning that the person sent after spare parts, no matter how well prepared, is in a no-win situation. He went to the counter once and was greeted by Geneva. Hello, Jack. I kind of figured did you, uh, if you'd be in today. Uh, I kind of wondered if you'd be in today, what with it raining at all. "'Hi, Geneva. I need the electric intake suction stabilizer "'for a Gemini 5690 Series Deluxe Four-Floor Vacuum Cleaner Model X-280.' "'He laid the piece on the counter. "'Oh,' Geneva said, "'that's the outside sucker-upper part.' "'Dad took a deep breath. "'Geneva,' he said, "'with all due respect, "'would you mind if I talked to Edgar about this?' "'Oh, not at all.' I'll send him out, she said, going into the office. A minute later, Edgar appeared. Hi, Jack, what can I do for you? Edgar, I need this part. It's the electric intake suction stabilizer for a Gemini 5690 series deluxe Floor vacuum cleaner, model X-280. Sure, Jack, no problem. Thanks, Edgar, Dad breathed a sigh of relief. Hey, Edgar eeled into the stockroom. We need an outside sucker upper part out here. Pronto. He turned back to Jack. Anything else, Jack? On the way out of the store, Dad ran into Lloyd. Hi, Lloyd. Howdy, Jack. Marilyn, run you out for parts? Yeah. I had to get an outside sucker upper part for the vacuum cleaner, Dad said. Lloyd looked at the part in Dad's hand. Oh, you mean the electric intake suction stabilizer. I had to get one for Bernice a few weeks ago. Well, see you around, Jack. Yeah, probably at the wash machine repair shop, Dad replied. Dad sent Mom 60 miles for a countershaft drive-wheel assembly one day last summer when it was not raining. Three hours later, she returned with glazed eyes. Here, she said, opening the trunk. Now, before you go into an apoplectic seizure... "'Let me tell you that I argued with a man that it wouldn't work. "'He insisted it would. I insisted it wouldn't. "'He said, Lady, I know this part. It will work. "'I said, Buddy, you don't know my husband. It will never work. "'Finally, I took it, but got permission to take it back. "'Dad examined the part. "'Well, well, well,' Mom said, backing away. "'Here it is, eleven o'clock. "'I guess I'll go in and make your favorite. "'Corned beef and cabbage. Dinners in forty-five minutes.' She turned and started running for the house. Marilyn, come back here, Dad firmly commanded. Mom stopped, turned to him, and forced a smile. You don't want corned beef and cabbage? Dad looked at the spare part, then at her. I could make meatloaf, but Dad didn't say a word. His eyes said it all. I guess it's a good thing I got permission to take it back, huh? Three hours later, Mom returned with another wrong spare part, the receipt and permission to take it back. At 8 p.m., Mom returned with the right spare part and vengeance flaming in her eyes, but it didn't rain, and didn't rain, and didn't rain. It was a snowy day last January when Mom put a part in Dad's hand and said, The dryer broke down. I need another rear crank assembly connector cartridge like this one. It's got to match this piece exactly or it will absolutely never work. An hour later, Dad called home. Marilyn, they don't have anything like this part here. Oh, that's too bad, Mom said. That means you have to go to Wichita for it. But Wichita is 150 miles away. I'll hold supper. Bye. She hung up and transferred a load of laundry from the wash machine to the dryer. I thought the dryer wasn't working, I said. Oh, Mom asked. Dad's out trying to get a replacement part for it. Oh, that, Mom responded. I gave him the internal diverter coupling from my food processor. Then she smiled. I waited such a long time for this. (laughs) Well, I thought you'd enjoy that. Now, on to another item from uh, Senator H.L. Richardson's report for March the 15th. And it's about the anti hunters, at it again. I'll read a portion of it. There's no joke about a man walking down a street snapping his fingers. Why are you snapping your fingers? someone asked, to keep the elephants away, he responded. That's silly was the reply. Well, he angrily retorted, you don't see any around, do you? I can't help but think of this anecdote every time the subject of mountain lions arises. The so-called animal lovers come to mind. These are the people who oppose any and all hunting as well as comprehensive game management programs of the Department of Fish and Game. When any legislation is offered to bring about some sensible management, these folks descend upon Sacramento-like flies around a septic tank. This behavior especially applies to the mountain lion protectionists. Since one rarely sees mountain lions, they obviously are near extinction. Logical? Not by a long shot. I have represented Los Angeles County for 19 years, and in that time I have never witnessed a murder, seen a robbery, or viewed a rape taking place. Since I have not witnessed any of the above, Can I conclude that there are no murderers, burglars, or rapists in Los Angeles County? Hardly. Because I personally do not see them is not evidence that these crimes have never taken place. Then he goes on to say that uh, he's only in 40 years of hunting, over 40 years of hunting, only once seen a mountain lion. Then he says, of course, the reason is mountain lions are secretive and elusive. They are nocturnal hunters, and they are very wary of people. In order to hunt them, dogs must be used, and even then it is difficult to find and tree a mountain lion. Let me say, we have them around here. Um, There's one that's on our property, and once in a while is sighted. But most legislators know nothing about this and their idea of wildlife is confined to watching now and then Marlon Perkins on television. But uh, to uh, go back to what Bill has to say, mountain lions are extremely effective predators and all experts agree that they kill a deer every 7 to 10 days. Expand the number of cats, and the deer population will shrink. Diminished deer herds discourage hunting. Thus, there are less nimrods in the field. This is exactly what has been happening. The deer population in the state has been shrinking, and the increased mountain lion population is certainly a contributing factor. Even when the mountain lion was hunted year-round by bounty hunters, The population was never close to extinction. However, when the number of mountain lions was smaller, the deer herds were much larger. The North King's deer herd was numbered at 17,000 animals in 1945. The present number is approximately 2,700. In 1950, the ratio was 750 deer to each lion. Now it is one lion for every 70 deer in the North King's area. That's south of us some distance, uh, up in the mountains, the King's Canyon country. In 1959, the predator control program ended. The mountain lion population began to increase. Well, as he goes on to say, uh, the deer are being killed at a tremendous rate. So that... uh, the estimate is that 240,000 deer a year are being killed in California by mountain lions. And he adds, the cattlemen testify that the lion predation of lice stock has increased significantly since 1971. A bill has been introduced to take care of this to allow bounty hunting of mount lions, and the animal lovers are up in arms. Well, our time is now limited, and I'd like to share something with you. I have, from time to time, read some poems to you. I do enjoy reading poetry, but I'm not the reader of poetry that My Dorothy is. She is superb, and she knows poetry by heart, and she can quote poems she studied as a student years ago, verbatim, without error, and beautifully. One poem that on the occasions now and then when I'm restless and not able to go to sleep promptly, because normally I do sleep readily and well, she will recite to me in the dark a poem she knows by heart and loves, Siegfried Sassoon's Slumber Song. I can't do it justice, but I'd like to pass this slumber song on to you. Sleep, and my songs shall build about your bed a paradise of dimness. You shall feel the folding of tired wings, And peace will dwell throned in your silence. And one hour shall hold summer and midnight, And immensity lulled to forgetfulness. For where you dream the stately gloom of foliage shall empower your slumbering thoughts with tapestries of blue. And there shall be no memory of the sky nor sunlight with its cruelty of swords. But to your soul that sinks from deep to deep through drowned and glimmering color. Time shall be only slow, rhythming, swaying. And your breath and roses in the darkness. And my love. Well, God bless you all. I'll be with you again in two weeks.